Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Adam Klickfeld's weekly Rashi study class. Uh, we are, I suppose, finally at the verses towards the end of Parshat Shmot that we've been kind of uh, referencing in advance for quite some time. And now we get to uh, jump into them. And if you think from the beginning that you're going to understand the basic shot of these verses after the Shi'ur, think again. Uh, I'm utterly convinced that neither I nor any sage living or dead really knows what's going on in these verses, really knows who the subject and the object is of each verb. Really, if they were had certainty over what the subject and object of the verbs were, really understand why the scene is here um, and, 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 and what's actually happening. Uh, but that makes it even more interesting to dive into. But it, uh, I think Pshat is very, very elusive here. So uh, where we are, we just finished um, verse 20, uh, verse 23 of, ch- of chapter four. So verse 23, um, to go back, uh, is this uh, maybe part two, as we've discussed, particularly as, as Larry has offered to like, rearrange where the verses come in this Aliyah. It's once again, God speaking to Moshe, once again, God anticipating for Moshe what's going to happen when Moshe finally meets Pharaoh. He hasn't met Pharaoh yet, so we're talking, there are going to be past tense verbs in this verse, but they're actually um, super perfect, that this will have taken place, but it hasn't, hasn't yet. So, uh, God says to Moshe, you're going to say to Pharaoh, Va'omar elecha, and I said to you, Pharaoh, he hasn't said it yet, but he will have, Shalachet b'nivi avdeni, uh, release my, uh, my, my, my son, because Moshe is speaking on God's behalf, and they will serve me, and you have refused to send him, uh, um, super perfect, or whatever the phrase is, you will, by then you will have already refused, Therefore, I, Moshe slash God, will eventually slay your firstborn son. Okay. Um, and we dealt with uh, a lot of stuff there, so we're not going to go backward, but we're going to uh, jump into verse 24, unless there are lingering questions about the material that we did last week. Anyone? Okay. So let's ver- read verse 24, uh, a three-verse section uh, that you could really spend uh, an enormous amount of time trying to break down its potential meaning. Uh, Matt, are you at a place where you can read or are you walking? Hi. Yeah, I can read. Okay, great. Uh, Pasuk Kaftalad. Okay, hold on just a second. I had it a second ago. Vayihi vaderech ba-malon vayif keshehu Adonai v'yivakesh Okay. And it was on the way to the night place, sleeping place. And, and the Lord God met him and sought to kill him, to slay him. Good. Tell me about the word to in English. Where? <laughs> well, you said, um, and it was on the way to the, to the okay. sleeping place. All right. Uh, you're right. No, it's not really there. So, and it was on the way at the night place, I guess. 
whether it's a huge difference, who knows? But just yeah. to be precise, that the the even though prepositions, as you discussed many times in Hebrew, are pluripotent, can mean many different things. The the b either means in or at or by means of, but probably not to. Even though we know there's some kind of a to implied in the verse because there is a traveling. Okay, so I think. Excuse me. Could could Bamalon also be sleeping, like a gerund kind of thing? Um, on the uh, way during, dur, dur, like kind of during the the sleeping part, sleepingly. Interesting. Like uh, sure. I think I suppose the possibility. Uh, Uncleish uh, does not agree. That doesn't mean it's not right. Uncleish turns mm-hmm. it into bevate and bevata, like a, a, a kind of a, a a house of housing, a house of of, of lodging. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the way Matt uh, translated it is, you know, kind of uh, pretty darn good, right? We know what the word vayahi means. It happened. We know what the word vaderach means, on the road, on the way. Uh, just notice for some of you um, grammar nerds, there's no dagesh in the b of vaderach, even though there normally would be because the, the previous word ends in a yud. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. we have an ahoy here, and the two trups are conjunctive. So vahi, vaderach, but the next word is bamalon, because the Bamalone does not follow a word whose that ends in an ahoy letter. So we know what Bamal we think we know what Bamalone means, either at a you know Malone, modern Hebrew hotel, a lodging place, or a um uh, a, a, a place of of overnight rest. The verb laloon in Hebrew means to to pass a night. It doesn't necessarily mean to sleep, it means to pass a night. So the reason mm-hmm. the reason the word malone in modern Hebrew means a hotel is because it's the place where one passes a night, right? Uh, Ever Fox translates that phrase as "now it was on the journey, comma at the night camp," and he's very precise. He uses takes the word malone and renders it night camp with a hyphen because he wants to make it very clear that whatever malone means, it, it has to do with a place and a time, right? And not necessarily what activity. Is being done there. It's different than the verbally shown. Okay, Right here's classic uh, biblical Hebrew where the subject follows the verb. So Adonai is the subject of Vayifkeshehu. It's Vav Hayipuch, which means it's a it's a past tense verb that looks like it's in the future. Pagash meet confront um, come into contact with with the suffix he and and God confronted met him doesn't say who the him is but we can guess it's moshe via vacation and he sought he requested now uh the most common way of understanding this is that the subject of the previous verb is a subject of this verb because that's what the antecedent is and it's another verb looks like it's future tense it's past tense and he god i wouldn't say he but the it's grammatically he god sought Hamito, the killing of him. If you want to be very precise in modern, in English, we'd probably turn that into an, an infinitive. God sought to kill him. It's not lehamito, but God sought hamit, hamit. There's your gerund, the killing, which mm-hmm. killing of him. Okay. Mm-hmm. Put it all together. The, the simplest way to understand this very unsimple verb is that as Moshe is returning we think to Egypt, right? Although, as we've discussed in previous uh, classes, we're not sure exactly where to plot this uh, the scene. 
that God decides to murder the one that God has just invited to save other people from murder, right? All of that in that verse. Matt. If I may, if I may, the the last subject that we heard from is, is Pharaoh's firstborn son. In the previous sentence, he says, now I will slay your firstborn son. So I'm not saying that's what, that's what it means here, but it's, it's, there's a, a bizarre connection. Right, you're saying that the, that the the who the suffix of of him, which is the object of vayafakesh vakesh, is a uh, it's dangling and it doesn't say it explicitly. And the last object was Pharaoh's son. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I'm guessing that Larry Herman is preparing a comment. Is he even here? Is he here? Larry here today? Yeah. <laughs> if he's here, it's preparing. A oh, he's not here. Oh, no, he's there. Um, you know about where, about the order of these chunks of verses because. It doesn't seem like it seems like it more connects backwards to right after um, verse twenty, right? Whereas Vayikach Moshe Matei that Moses took the staff and and went on his way. It most it most easily connects to be stitched together to that. Okay, um, so th- th- there's some sort of attempt of shot in this first verse. Let's see what comments or questions that people have on that verse before we look at Rashi. Barry. I was also going to agree with Matt. Uh, and it, it refers to the last uh, object was the uh, 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 Pharaoh's son. But uh, I'm concerned here. Most of the God encounters, previous stories, have been in the Basadea someplace. Uh, this is the first encounter inside a place. Uh, I wonder whether there's any significance that the, uh, here God is confronting, but the, the encounter is, is indoors rather than out in the Sadan. Right. Well, we don't know that it's indoors because no. we don't know that Malone means a, a motel as opposed to the place where they encamped, right? So um, we're, we're not, a, not alone. Not all encounters previously is one person out someplace. This seems to be uh, implying a place where other people stay also. Not necessarily. That, that, that might be the bias of how we think of them alone now. Uh, I'm not so sure. I think if, if you took uh, uh, 20, you know, 20 Jews who were experts in Torah and expert movie makers and had them stage the scene, I would guess, I could be wrong, that a majority of them would have the scene be taking place like in a in or by their own tent, but it, there's no way of knowing. There's this, and, and you're right. It, it's not it's not fully exposed in a in a in a sadeh, But I'm not sure it's any more public than Jacob's wrestling um, with the angel. Uh, Andrew and then Joanna. I am just so stuck on vayivakesh. Um, <laughs> it just it's such an odd qualifier. No matter who he's trying to kill. It's just, you know, where do you see anywhere, you know, someone explaining God's actions? I lost you, Andy. As opposed to just doing something. Like, um, sorry. Let me turn my video off. Hopefully that'll help. Um, how, how does God even signal that he has an intent to kill? So I'm just stuck on it. Yeah. So, so that's a it's it's a good question, right? The, the, the really, you could turn that comment, Andy, into the question of what does vayavakesh mean in this situation, and how similar is it to the way we would use it in modern Hebrew, right? 
when we use it in modern Hebrew, it's a request, right? It's, right, you know, right. it, it, it's a, it's a polite request, right? The word bevakasha, meaning you're welcome or please, um, is, is a way of saying that I, like I, I would like this and, and I, and I, and I need your help with it. So please help me in a request. I ask this, right. Um, it, it, it may and may not be that biblical bet kuf shin means the same kind of um, implication that I am relying on you to make this happen, right. In in modern speech in English and in Hebrew, if I'm requesting something, it means that I'm not capable of making it happen on my own. Um if we turn it into sought, which is um, how some translations work in this on this verse, it actually has both meanings. Because someone, if I've, I've sought to done to do something, it means that I really wanted to, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I needed your help with it. It means I I I, I sought out, I intended to do so, and I, and I did right. So it may be that that the biblical vayavakesh is more like sought than requested, but it does. It, it it does make us ask that such questions. Um, so good. Um, let's go to Joanna. Um, two things. Um, the the shorosh pegemoshin, you know, just meaning to encounter or to encounter in a tense situation, because I believe that's the same shorosh that's used in the Jacob and Asab encounter. So this sense of it's not just like, let's have a friendly meeting. And um, the other thing that's going through my mind with all these dangling pronouns is who are they referring to? Are they all referring to the same person or do they switch in the verse? And imagining the scene in my head in terms of where is Moshe, where is Tsipora, and where are the kids um, in a moment at any given second, especially in light of two things. The conversation we already had about when they went on their way and Moses put them on the camels, and then did they stay together or separate? Or, and fascinatingly, um, I was online for the Parshat HaShavua program with um, Rabbi Schatz and Rabbi Shapiro this past weekend, and in a timely reference, they were looking in Parshat Yitro at that moment when Yitro gives his advice to Moshe. But to set the scene, Rabbi Shapiro went back and quickly took us through the entire parak. And what screamed out to me in light of this class was three times in the introduction to that scene, we are told that Yitro is coming with Sipora and her children. So highlighting that at that point in time, by that point in time, Moshe was not with his wife and kids. And so when did that separation happen? Right. right. All, all good questions to which I have no great answers. But yes, Yitro makes it very clear that, that the reunion of Moshe post-Exodus is also with a Tzipora after she had been sent back as Achar Shilucheha, which has to have taken place after this scene, wherever we put the scene. And of course, Ein Mukdamu Muchar Torah, so things can be out of chronological order in the Torah, but not they can't they can't not make chronological sense, right? Um, yeah, the 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 Bakesh verb, just going to combine your comment and Andy's, we've talked at times that there are these um, 
two letter beginnings of roots that create families of verbs that have similar meanings, but are not the exact same. Um, and uh, bet kuf shin is one of them, right? So bet kuf, uh, bet kuf is one of them. So bet kushin means, um, uh, sorry, not bet kuf, pay the, the first thing you said, pay gimel. Pay gimel is one of those uh, two letter roots that creates a family of meanings that are shades of another. So pay gimel ayin, paga, means to, to, to wound or to meet in a intense way, right? So vayif gabamakom, that's Yaakov uh, meeting uh, God overnight. Uh, and there was like an, an, an intense encounter between them, pe gimel ayin. Pe gimel shin is normally understood as a less intense, more prosaic meeting. It's just like modern Hebrew, a pigisha is, is, is a meeting, right? Um, so if we compare vayifka shehu to what the verb would have meant had it been vayifka ehu, which would have meant like a clash, right? Like, 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 uh, you know, two rams meeting each other. It almost seems to invite us to imagine this as being a very soft, like, hey, coffee clash, except that what happens here is, is, um, a moment of very high stakes. So it's almost as if the rup vayifka shehu is soft selling the scene and there would have been uh, a root in the same family of words that would have may have been more appropriate for what we're actually going to, uh, to witness between them. Um, okay. Uh, Rick. Um, Matt wanted to add something there to what you were saying. Oh, um, after you, after you, oh no, I just wanted to say to propose, um, then start to amend my translation to say maybe that God uh, proposed to kill him or threatened to kill him. That way, that answers the question of why can't God do what God wants? So it it, it changes changes the dynamics of the encounter. Right. I, I think I was I was getting at that. I think proposed might be equally good. That's what I was getting at by suggesting sought. Like if I say I sought to do something, it means that was my intention. It doesn't mean that I I made a request of someone. It could, it could mean that. But it sort of implies that, but it, that it didn't happen. But here, that it wasn't accomplished. But here, you know, if you say he, he threatened or he warned, then he accomplished the Lord accomplished. Right, but he didn't accomplish it. God doesn't accomplish it because sure did, sure did. Look at the end result. The circumcision was 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 was, was performed. Yeah, but but but, the, but what God proposed to do in your reading is to kill him. That was a threat, which worked. It got the goal. It got the. Uh, it, it reminded him, "Hey, you haven't circumcised your kid. Better do it, or I, hell, for real." Okay, so uh, let's hold that because that 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 reads into this verse properly. So the content of the next verse at this stage in the verse, we're reading through the first time. We have no idea what this is about, right? We have no right. idea about Brit Mila or anything. But yes, it it it, it, it without giving away too much. Many commentators read the Vayev Hagesh Hamito as 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 a threat, which once the the um, the, uh, the, the the once the the requirements has been have been taken care of, the threat will subside. Yeah, which by the way is an interesting mirroring to what's going to be happening. The very the very mission that God is sending Mo, Moshe on with Pharaoh is to threaten death unless he does something. Right. So some people read this as a weirdo three-verse microcosm in the inverse 
of what Moshe is about to represent to Pharaoh of God's intentions. Moshe is actually experiencing a version of it in, and regarding a child. Uh, Rick? Okay, hi. So a couple of things. Um, let me remind us that the Vayivakesh, uh, we had that verb just a couple of verses ago where God tells Moses that there's nobody there trying to kill you anymore. There's no Anashim. Good. But meanwhile, there's me still. But um, that's a weird way for God to describe things. Um, let me also say that when people got sick in the ancient world, they thought it was a punishment from God, that because God causes everything. And if you get sick, if you're healthy, that's because God wants it that way, right? So let me also remind the class that we got Bani, Bani, Bani here, Bincha, sorry, two Banis and a, a Bincha. And um, Tzipora is there also. She's within earshot, um, just like Sarah was with Abraham and and uh, everybody, Rachel was with Jacob. Uh, they could hear the conversation going on about the idols and stuff like that. So um, I only bring it up again because I read it a few weeks ago of the, of all the verses of all the Aliyot. They gave me this one in bow to read about the circumcision after Passover. The Himol there um, gets the uh, Darga. It stands out and and the word Hagar is in there, uh, the stranger and, and, um, the Laguerre. And, um, so my crazy idea is that Sipora heard that. And, and here we have Gershom and, and they haven't done the circumcision yet. Um, uh, so she knows that it's going to be part of the holiday. And so he's gotten sick for some reason and that's all connected. So I don't know how to say that better than that but those are the ideas that i got good there's no way to say that better than that you said it exactly as it should be said <laughs> wonderful rick Thanks. Uh, before i go to david uh no let's hear david and then i want to uh, share something on the screen that links back to something that barry said before before barry speaks again so david go ahead yeah i was just wondering if the sought to kill maybe represents some sort of moral struggle that's going on because moses is not comfortable with the concept of slaying the firstborn and so, you know, God is threatening him or, you know, trying to change his mind. Yeah. So um, interesting. Uh, yet another way of imagining this scene as a, as, as presaging or, or, or predicting um, or preparing Moshe for the encounters that Moshe is going to have with Pharaoh. It's hard to know because like if, if we wipe all that away, we've already, we've kind of implied this, but let's just say it. It's a crazy verse. It's a crazy verse that Moshe, particularly if we follow the basic order, Moshe is about to be sent in as God's messenger to free the people. And the verse is telling us that God sought to slay him. It is a crazy verse. So trying to figure out in what way this verse is connected to the things that happen or are coming up, we we can't not try that because otherwise it's, it's such an odd non sequitur, an odd plot line. Right. Um, so uh, it's interesting to imagine right, Moshe as, you know, we've discussed Moshe, the reluctant prophet, you know, maybe Moshe, the reluctant child threatener. Right. And uh, and how God brings Mo- how God turns Moshe into someone who's willing to actually uh, say those words. Um, let me share something before Barry speaks again, because it connects to the thing that Barry said before. 
Um, if you look at Uncleus, look at Uncleus on the page, and then we'll look at the screen. So Uncleus translates the word. Um, he does uh, actually a bunch of interesting things. First of all, he translates the word Malone into um, into two because Vayahi becomes Vahava, uh, Baderach becomes Be'archa, like Orech, like Orech Chaim. Uh, the the, uh, the pathway of life, and then takes the single word Bamalon and turns it into two Aramaic words, Bevet Mavata, right? Um, so in some ways, this pushes closer to what you were saying before, Barry, that it, 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 it's, a, it's a structure, because otherwise the word bait wouldn't be there. But look at the word Mavata in Aramaic. According to Jastro, it's from the root boot, which I forgot actually what the word boot means. Um, we could look it up in a second, um, but it refers to a night lodging, and in other places it refers to the the structure of the night lodging. Right? That the 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 here it's hammock, like the the little thing you put out for your for your night sleep. So it's it could be that it's a structure where other people are, or it could be. You've established that this is your place overnight, and so it's called a Beit Mavuta, and not necessarily a house where many other people are. Let me remind myself what boot means in Aramaic. Um, to go in, to lodge, to pass the night. Yeah. Um, I guess it's related to buy it. I guess uh, I never thought about that, that the word buy it actually refer, uh, being connected to a word that means nighttime and passing a night but that makes sense. Uh, okay, uh, Barry, please. So I guess three things uh, on this uh, lodging place. Going in, going in implies that possibly that someone else has created this, not that I put up my place. Yeah, uh, if, the bet, if the ba means in, and remember ba can also mean at, and they're shades of one another, but... but at does not necessarily mean inside. I keep going. Um, going back to this confrontation, and then and then Sapporo taking action. So, what what is the nature of this confrontation? Is this in God's intention, God's mindset, or is this a physical that Sapporo sees in this encounter? And, and, and what what is the um, what is the action from God that Sapporo is aware of from which she takes a reaction? Great question. So Barry's anticipating the next verse, which we all kind of know is happening. But be, be, before she can take action, she must be aware of God's conf- action potential. Great, right? It's a great question. What? We are to, we are learning something in verse twenty four as the reader given insight to the author's uh, full mind, right? But what is manifest in that verse such that we should read the next verse as a reaction to it because it makes sense that it is a reaction to it. Well, we'll get there in a second. But Sipora does something, and it doesn't make sense for Sipora have done something randomly. Sipora must have done something in response, and so Barry's asking, what is the matter? Not what's the matter, but what is the the material of Vayavakesh Hamito that God sought, intended, proposed, made a suggestion that he kill, the God kill Moshe, such that Tzipora knew about it, right? That would be another challenging thing to to stage. Is this, is it God coming down from 
the heavens and saying out loud, I'm going to kill Moshe? Is it God in the pose that Abraham is over Isaac with a sword? Is there something metaphysical going on that somehow Sipor is just aware of it? Really good question, Barry. Third, um, we brought up the parallel to uh, Jacob and Esau, uh, and and that's the night that uh, Jacob wrestles, and the result of his wrestling, uh, he now is uh, has the strength, we might say, to do what he is going to be doing, and in this regard, um, in this matter, what would you call it? Uh, Moshe is um, being transformed into the strength that he needs, that he's going to do. Mm. Good, good, good connection. Uh, Diane Larry. Here we are. Okay. We may have a screaming baby in the background. That's ha- okay. Happy, happy screams. Well, that's, that's appropriate for this scene. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. So, so I want to build on something Rick said, because, I'm going to look at this in some very simplistic way, which is to say that maybe um, um, to Bikesh Hamito is someone who gets ill to the point of death, like he's about to meet his maker. And so in primitive, in primitive societies, there were maybe all kinds of ways of appeasing the gods in order to prevent your death in the same way that today we change people's names who are on the verge of death. Maybe this was some kind of a, um, a, a right. Um, there had to be blood. I don't know, but, but if you think about it as just not that he, even though beforehand Moshe has encountered um, God as a character with a conversation and everything, maybe this is just simply, Moshe got really sick on the way to Egypt. It's really fascinating, uh, Diane. I'll, let me hear what Larry said, and I want to respond to what you're saying, Diane. We hadn't talked about it. I, I'm going to say something somewhat similar, but um, just a couple of quick comments. People have connected this to the previous verse, but the previous verse, the verb was horeg, and not um, not uh, uh, death. Here is hamito. So they're they're, they're completely different. Um, I, I'm always looking for the explanation for why it's why why the story is told like it's told, and I tend to think we make way too much of this story. Um, and so I'll just say what I'm going to say. In 1976, I got malaria really bad and almost died. I wanted to die. I asked to die. I saw God, not really, but. I saw my death. I thought I was already dead. That's what's happening here in verse 14 is at night, Moses, assume the, assume the, 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 the subject here is Moses. Moses actually encountered God because he was about to die. And he, Moses, asked for his death. He was so sick, he asked for his death. So his wife, using a rite that primitive people use all the time to try to use blood to, to take away the death, and I learned a word from Alter, who has like a whole page on this thing, which he never, ever, ever does. She uses an uh, uh, apotropaic uh, approach, which means apotropaic. Yeah, fending off evil. So she circumcises her son, which son? Oldest son? Not sure. 
it, because she knows that's a way of drawing a lot of blood without actually harming him and needed to be done anyways. And then she throws this at Moses's feet, at Moses's feet as a way of trying to cure this particular illness, right? And then when he, when God let Moses alone, in other words, he was now back from being sick, she then makes this statement, which I can't really explain. An incantation. An, inca- an incantation. Yeah. So that's to me, is the simplest explanation of what's going on here. But I'll stop there, because we haven't gotten to the other two verses. Yeah. Really, really interesting stuff. Um, I want to let most of what you said just stand. Uh, the one thing I want to respond to in what Diane said is... In, in some ways, this is a brutal scene. Uh, and in some ways, circumcision to this day, uh, even those of us who are fully or mostly fully committed to it, is a brutal thing to witness. And as we think about the korbanot, the sacrifices in, um, in antiquity, it, it must have been a, 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 an, an incredible and not necessarily from our uh, moral and visual standards, easy thing, easy thing to witness, particularly those of us who don't, who don't eat meat, but even those of us who do eat meat. A lot of people have written about how the Brit Milah on the one hand and the sacrifice of animals on the other hand should be understood less as a um, kind of a horrific brutality, but a tremendous evolution from a society where the children were not getting circumcised, but getting slaughtered and where appeasing God was not slaughtering an animal that was going to be consumed as part of your nutrition, but slaughtering uh, a human, slaughtering a child. And so there, there may be some of that directly or indirectly in this verse that if you want to, if you want to see this verse as, as an appeasement, um, as an incantation to appease a god or to heal um, uh, a Moshe who, who had a terrible case of malaria, um, I, li- I really like your, your your potential read, Larry. That the that the subject of Ayavakesh is Moshe that he sought his own death. Like I'll I'll I'll, I'll, I'll linger with that. That this was um, a relatively cheap way of going about that, rather than thinking that the way to appease the god is to kill the child. Or to or to draw blood that is actually going to be um, devastating. Now, how to make that all work with the next verses? I don't know because we, we are we are lingering on this verse because that's our method to do a verse at a time. We're going to have to once we finish finish verse twenty five and twenty six, which are going to take some time because this is the verse that we're on is the easiest of the three verses uh, in language and in meaning. Uh, so this is going to take at least a few sessions. We're going to have to come back and now try to remake sense of verse 24 based on the content that 25 and 26 tells us. But uh, I should have even said less than that. Great comments, Larry, Diane, Uh, Norm and Rachel. Um, I have a very different reading. Also Um, God had told Moshe that there is no one left in Egypt that's still interested in killing him. But we should know that Pharaoh's son certainly would still remember him. They sort of grew up together, probably, and he um, would still remember Moshe and probably be interested in killing him, especially if he has an inkling that his life is being threatened, which perhaps he does. And 
when God says there's nobody in Egypt still after you, Moshe, it implies to me that Pharaoh's son is not in Egypt. Hmm. Where he is, we don't know. Maybe he's on some sort of rumspringa or... What was that word? Rumspring is something that Amish teenagers do when they go uh, oh, yes. you know, a weekend or a week or a month or whatever to go wild. Um, what, what Pharaoh's son is doing, I don't know. But apparently he's traveling perhaps on the road between Midian and Egypt, perhaps in the Sane, wandering about. What he's doing, hunting or whatever, we don't know. But perhaps he comes across Moshe. He has an incentive to attempt to kill him. He attempts to kill him, and that relates back to our previous verse perfectly, because as I think Larry previously noted, maybe it was Rick, the end of the previous sentence, the the previous verse, had a him who was Pharaoh's son. And so perhaps it's Pharaoh's son who attempts to kill Moshe. Yeah. So with the imprecise or at least um, pluripotent pronouns and the word perhaps, which is a great word. These these verses can mean anything, right? Like, and I, I don't want to say that say that facetiously because some of midrash is exactly that, saying, "Well, since it can mean anything, what, what's what's my working fantasy as to what this verse can mean?" And there are some fantastical interpretations of scenes in the Torah that are far more fantastical than what Norm just um, represented. And the Rashi that we're going to read was it this verse? Uh, yeah, I think the Rashi on this verse is going to be stranger than, than that. So if you're hearing, listen to what uh, Norm says and say, that can't make any sense. Wait till Rashi brings down the Midrash on how uh, a certain a group of rabbis read this verse. Um, I wasn't, I don't remember, Norm, how did you make sense of the Adonai, Adonai if that's your reading of it? Um, I'm, I'm putting the last two words as a completely separate phrase. Aha, uh-huh, got Moshe, it. You know, he's out, he's out seek, seeking to meet God. And, 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 and by the by, that son from the previous verse sought to execute Moshe. Okay. Right. Interesting. Okay. Uh, Leonard, Rebecca. All right. So my comment was more relevant uh, 15 minutes ago, but. Uh, <laughs> Resurrected. <laughs> Anyway, uh, we looked at the uncleus on the first half of the verse, but if you look at the uncleus on the second half of the verse, you can see that he throws in an entirely new word that's not in the Hebrew. Malach. Malach. This is yes. Malach da Adonai. So he right. talks about the angel of God instead of saying that God is doing this. So I'm just going to throw that out there. Very good, right? So um, where R- Rashi is going to play with that a little bit in the sense that when Rashi it, it, it brings the commentary into these verses. It seems to be an encounter not between Moshe and God and Moshe and a Malach. And that may have Uncleus's interpolation may have influenced Rashi or Uncleus's interpolation may have just represented how the Jews at that time understood this verse to be that it's life. But that this is not a direct threat of execution by God to Moshe, but via an angel, particularly because we've been having a lot of angels in our scenes. I said that in particular for Rick's benefit, since I know he likes angels. Yes. Thank you. Uh, Joanna. So back again, kind of in my mind, pulling together a few different things that have been said. One is the confusion about the pronouns in this verse. Two is um, Larry's very intriguing comment about um, when he had malaria and um So I'm, and to me, like, given Larry's comment, there's a disconnect between 
God wanting to try to kill Moshe and then doing something to the son because of that. And I'm also looking at the etnachta in this verse and where it separates the verse and wondering if almost you can separate this verse into two completely separate clauses. So far, we've been looking at verse 24 as an introduction to what's going to happen in verses 25 and 26. But I'm also wondering if there's a possible read where it's the introduction to also the following scene that starts in verse 27 of the encounter between Moshe and Aharon. In that, is it possible that Vayhi Baderech Bamalon is he, Moshe, was on the way to the Malone? That's happening in one scene. In another scene, separate and apart from that, Vayifkeshehu Adonai, Adonai, um, encounters one of the sons of Moshe and tries to kill that son. And then, you know, as the verses continue, you know, there, there's two cameras in two different places. There's a camera with Sipora, and we see what's happening there. And then the camera shifts to Moshe. And, uh, Sure, maybe, perhaps, right? Uh, I'm, I'm struck as I'm thinking about the content of what Joanna said, just to jump up uh, 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 an analytical level. This is, I suppose, true every time this class meets, but particularly it's, it's ringing, ringing true to me now. This is the, the yeshiva of Pumbadita in the third century. What we're doing right now, these, these are Jews who care about this text, doing everything they can to try to wring meaning from it and to make sense of it. And I, I just think that some of the conversations that we are having on the text of the Torah, some of the highest level um, explorations of the meaning of Torah that are happening in, you know, in a standard synagogue adult ed class, uh, pretty much anywhere. It's, it's, it's really fascinating to hear all of your, uh, to applying what you know about the Hebrew language and sometimes um, ancient history and grammar uh, and and your literary skills and imagining different ways of weaving these things together based on where the commas and semicolons are. This is the process that we really have inherited from our, um, our spiritual ancestors. And I'd like to think that uh, it would make rough Papa proud as it were. So sure. That's a, that's a fascinating possibility and, and very in line with how we've been met dealing with this whole set of texts, which is seeing if we can stitch them together slightly differently than how they are presented to us. Uh, let's hear from Rick, and then we'll go back and read the Rashi uh, and see if we can get through at least part of the Rashi before the end of class today. Um, just real quick, um, it's a question more. Um, the Malone, besides malaria, which sounds the same, Malone and La Moulot, um, are there any, uh, uh, the two uh, root, the two-letter root, three-letter root, are there any, Relations to Malone and, and Mulot. It's alliterative or assonant, depending on which word you choose. Yeah, but that's but, it. But it, that's it. Um, <laughs> the Mulot, the root is mem lamed hey, lamul, to circumcise, to cut around. And Malone, the mem of Malone is part of the structure of the noun, like, um, like michtav is a letter, but the root is katav. So the root of malon is lamed vavnun or lamed yudnun. So the nun is integral to the word malon. The mem is integral to the word milah. The only letter they really share is a lamed. 
So it's, it's, it's not enough, I think, to draw a connection of meaning, but it's certainly uh, lyrical to hear it being said. Okay. Um, Matt, let's go see what Rashi has to say about this. Now that we've done a good amount of surgery on our cells, Rashi has an extremely short comment on yeah. this verse and then a wacko longer comment on it. And excuse right. me, referring to Rashi as wacko. Okay. Vayhi Moshe Baderach Bamalon. And the word he explains is Vayhi. He explains it by saying Vayhi, if I understand it correctly. But what, what, what's his point? Hold on. What word are you seeing? Are you looking at a different version of, the, of Rashi and I am? What's, what's I the word that Rashi said? I see two entries. The first one is like a one word entry. Vayhi Moshe Baderach Bamalon. And then it gives the word Vayhi. Right. The, 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 the next one is the longer one, Vayavakesh Hamito. Right. So the first thing Rashi does is basically throw in the word Moshe as a subject to the word Vayahi in between oh, Vayahi and Vayahi. Exactly. I'm yeah. on a different page. You're right. So he's adding the word Moshe. Okay. Right. So, so Rashi, so the first comment Rashi had done is, is read a word. I'd like, by the way, one day to submit a taste of Torah for Tamil Betham, and it's just going to be one word. And have people like spend an hour trying. What did Rabbi Klingfeld mean? Just a single word, right? You have to, you have to, have, you have to reach a certain level to be able to say something with a word. Um, but joking aside, assuming that Rashi is saying something, right? Or we often use this term, disabusing us of a notion that we would have had had he not said this, right? right. And he doesn't just having. It's not just having like a word burp. Right. Why is why is Rashi adding the word Moshe? What does he not want us to think this verse might mean? What else could who else could have been the Vayahi? This may go back to what you were saying, Joanna. But what what, what do you think? Yeah, I think we've, we've touched on this before. There's various possibilities. Good. It could so be son, it could be who knows who. So it could be referring to the fact, as many of you said, that the previous antecedent is Pharaoh's son, not Moshe. It could be Rashi being aware that he knows that. He knows the Larry Herman work and that this verse really follows verse 20 and not verse 23. Um, there could be many possibilities, but with one word, he's telling the reader, all of your other fantasies about what this is, no, it, it's Moshe. Right. What it means is that this is seen as happening to Moshe. Joanna? What's fascinating to me, what jumped up out to me as soon as that was read out loud is we're so steeped in the tradition that as much as we're debating um, what this verse could possibly mean, I mean, we've been anticipating this scene for so long that we're reading verse 24 as an introduction to something, to one or two of the following scenes. I think there's a possible read, like if you've never encountered Torah before and you've just read verse 23 and you're reading verse 24 for the first time, who is on their way to the hotel? It's Paro. And who's the son who's in danger? Paro's son, because God just said he was going to kill Paro's son. So this is sort of, you know, immediately shifting for the reader. Okay, now we're back to focusing on Moshe. We're not talking about Paro here. Great, Joanne. You're almost saying that rather than Rashi's commenting on verse 24 to help us understand something backwards, it's helping us understand something forward, lest you think that, um, that, that 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 this that, that this scene is 
is, is immediately following this threat of killing Pharaoh's son. A reminder that the threat to killing Pharaoh's son, and I know this is a subtlety, is a threat that is not yet been proffered, right? It's like, it's, it's, a, it's a quotation within a quotation. It's God's saying to Moshe what you will eventually say to Pharaoh, but it actually hasn't been proffered yet. So even if we finish verse 23, we're not yet at a place in our minds where you think that God is threatening Pharaoh's son, just that God is telling Moshe that eventually he's going to threaten Pharaoh's son. But sure, Rashi is telling us, in case you're wondering if any of that is, is, is what's going on here, this is, we're back to Moshe. But it's amazing what he can do with a single word, right? Uh, assuming that we are at all correct on what he's trying to do. Good. Anything else on the, on the word Moshe? Otherwise, we can start reading the next Rashi. I met, we might get through reading it. It's gonna, I imagine we're, gonna, we're not going to get through discussing it. Anyone? Okay, Matt, you're going to enjoy this one. And, and you might even want to invoke our dear friend Arthur Stern for the first time in a long time because yeah. he would have gone crazy on this one. All of a sudden. All right. Uh, Hamalach, by the way, it's written in my, my version here. It says in parentheses, Hamalach, close parentheses, Moshe. Right. So, some some versions of Rashi have the word Hamalach. Some mm-hmm. versions don't. Uh, I, and, and again, it goes back to Uncle is saying is is the subject here of of the of the one who wanted to kill Moshe. Is it God directly or God through a Malach? And right. even the versions of Rashi don't agree with one another. All right. So so parentheses the angel close parentheses to Moshe. Since he did not circumcise Eliezer, his son, and because he failed, he was uh, he was to be punished with death. Okay, so if we pause there, what we've got so far is that the reason why Moshe's life is threatened is because apparently he did not do a bris for his second son, Eliezer. Okay. Mm-hmm. Any thoughts, comments on that before we keep going in the Rashi? Just anyone not clear as to what's happening so far in this scene or in the scene in the Midrash? Okay. Okay. Tanya Amar Rabbi Yossi. So according to the commentary, Rabbi Yossi said... I'm going to pause. For those of you who studied some Talmud mission before, and all of you said a lot of Rashi, this is a very strange formulation of Rashi, right? So re- let's remind ourselves. Most of the time, Rashi gives us his answer without even hinting that he took it from a midrash, even though we know it. Occasionally, Rashi will say, umidrasho, or v'yesh dorshim, and making it very clear that he's taking from a source. He almost never uses the vocabulary of the midrash, or the Talmudic text, in his answer. The word tanya is a technical term. Tanya is a word that appears in the Talmud that tells us that we are learning a source from the Mishnaic era that didn't get included in the Mishnah, right? There's a whole uh, volume of material called the Brightot, the external texts. And it's a technical term. You you find it on every page of the Talmud. But Rashi almost never introduces technical language, even when he's telling us very clearly he's borrowing this from Midrashic literature I have no idea why he's doing it here. He could have um, he could have started with Amar Rabbi Yossi. He's he's really quoting a midrash in full, and that's just a, uh, an odd thing, at least in terms of how Rashi normally does his 
annotations. Keep going. So uh, for heaven forbid, he didn't, uh, he didn't, it's not that he failed, it's rather that he said, I will uh, do the circumcision and I will go off on my trip. And there's an implied question mark there, Matt. Meaning, okay. Oh, okay, so did he say, I will, maybe did he say, and then that I will circumcise and then I'll go on a trip? Close. Lest Rabbi Yossi says, lest you think of Moshe as a as someone who was going to reject circumcision, mm-hmm. what his sin was was saying, Amul, I'm going to circumcise him, and I'm just going to take him on a trip after circumcising oh, him? Sakanahi. Yeah, there's a danger there, of course, to the child uh, until until the third day. Uh, and I will... And I'll take him for three days. So put 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 a put a a quote a, a, um, a question mark exclamation point after the shloshayamim. That's yeah. one thing Moshe said to himself. He said to himself, "What? I'm going to circumcise him and then take him on a trip? Right. It would be dangerous to my son for three days. Or what's my other possibility?" Moshe says to himself, "Amul." Amul, I will, I will circumcise. Oh, I'll circumcise him, and then I'll go for three days. No, uh, Eshe, what does what does Shohem mean in Hebrew? Oh, I'll stay, I'll stay, I'll stay. Sorry, I'll stay, I'll stay for three, remain for three days. Uh, God ordered me to return to go return to Egypt. Another question mark exclamation point. So. Yeah. Rabbi Yossi is imagining Moshe saying, I'm stuck between a rock and a hard place. Mm-hmm. Either I circumcise him because I haven't yet, and then take him on this trip, that's going to be dangerous uh-huh. to him. Or yeah. I circumcise and I wait three days, right? You know, it takes a while to recover from the circumcision. You know, most of us didn't walk for a year after that, but I'm bummed, right? right. Um, but then right. I'm violating God's command who said, get going. Right. Okay, right. okay. it's and and so why was he why was he punished? Uh, add he, another word. I don't have mita. Oh, interesting. Okay, but that's fine. Punished with death. because he busied himself with the night place first. Right. So this midrash he made, is trying he to make camp. He made camp first. This midrash is trying to make very um, specific sense of why the word malone appears in the verb, in the mm-hmm. verse. That that it's that malone word that got Moshe in trouble. He, uh, he so if 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 Moshe couldn't win here because neither choice was really okay to endanger his son or to delay God to delay God's wishes, then why was he punished? Right. And this, by the way, is also presaging the situation that Pharaoh is going to be in, where he's going to be punished for something that. He, had, he may not have any choice in, so notice that uh, pre-parallel as well. Because he went on the way, and instead of doing the mitzvah first, he made sure that he had an upgrade to a suite. Right, okay. According to the Mechelta. Okay, pause here, because the next part is where Rashi goes into a more fantastical place, and maybe we will we'll pick up on that next week. Comments or questions on the part of the Rashi that Matt just read? I saw some comments in the chat, but I haven't had a chance to read them yet. 
Oh, yes, the next part is amazing. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so I, if, we'll, we'll give that to you next week off if you want. Um, <laughs> Joanna. I do find it fascinating that if the read is that this is in reference to Eliezer and not Gershom, that um, we have never encountered Eliezer's name in the text yet. We have never yeah. been informed of his birth. And like here he is in this seemingly pivotal scene. And we actually don't know of his existence. Like he's right. never named. Right. So I was waiting for someone to say that because we, unless we really are precise, have a precise memory of when we're told things in the Torah, we know that Moshe has two sons. We're going to meet them both in, in, in Parshat Yitro. But as of now, there's only Gershom, right? So R- R- Rashi is bringing a Midrash that says that, ah, it must have been that, that Eliezer was just born. We didn't hear about it because there was a burning bush, right? He comes back from the burning bush and all of a sudden there's a baby, Right. And that's why we hadn't hadn't heard of his birth. And there was a mitzvah and obligation of confronting Moshe. And he he shirked it or didn't know which way to handle it. And it's a blood mitzvah. Right. And it's and it's a mitzvah having to do with spiritual life and death, which places it kind of properly in in the scene, given what's at stake for Moshe and what's at stake for the people that Moshe is about to confront. Okay. Are there any commentators that see this as a reference to Gershom, that it was Gershom who was uncircumcised and not Eliezer? Um, whenever a question begins, are there any, the answer is almost always yes, but I'm not aware of one, right? And I, um, I don't think there's any on our page, uh, on, the, on the classic Mifrog Delot. Uh, maybe between now and next week, I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can could, I could find one. Um, last comment, Leonard, Rebecca, and then we'll end because we're at 9.30. Sorry, my phone was ringing. I actually, uh, uh, I found it so strange that Sipora was the one who did the circumcision rather than Moshe, the father. So I looked, I looked in a women's uh, commentary book that Leonard had given me years ago, and I see the midrash about it being Gershom. That because because according to the agreement that Moshe and Sipora had when they got married, they were going to raise half the children as Midianites. And so Gershom, as the first, belonged to Tsipora. Oh, he wasn't wow. circumcised and he was raised as a Midianite. He was named, you know, I'll be a stranger in the land. And so the story then, according to this, goes that that's, you know, why Tsipora then in in seeing that, oh, this is about the circumcision, I'm going to circumcise him so that he won't be a stranger when, uh, uh, you know, when he goes back to uh, the homeland. Uh, I also, Tsipora, won't be a stranger anymore. And so that it was really because uh, of Gershom uh, uh, countering his being raised as a Midianite that she was now going to remedy this. Fascinating. Fascinating. Thank you. A great place to end. When we meet next week, we'll dump into part two of this Rashi. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.